This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and for all of you who know me, you know that I'm a big believer in love and the idea that love can be a profound healing force in our lives. So I was thrilled to come across an incredible human being, Scott Stabile, who has authored some beautiful and powerful books on the power of love. The first one that really resonated with the public and garnered him a very large Facebook following was Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And in fact, author Glennon Doyle wrote, this book opened my heart and mind and I'm forever grateful. His latest book and the book I would love to focus on today is Enough As You Are, a gorgeous, heart-expanding collection of poetry and short prose with the premise that each of us is beautiful, whole, and enough just as we are. Before we meet Scott, let me tell you a little bit more about him. He's a passionate love advocate who believes there is no force more powerful than love to create real connection and healing in our world. Scott guides transformational breathwork journeys and leads personal empowerment workshops internationally. And his inspirational posts have attracted a huge and very devoted social media following including more than 350,000 Facebook fans. Wow. When reviewing Scott's book, Enough As You Are, New York Times bestselling author Holly Whitaker wrote something beautiful that I think really captures what this is. She said, and I quote, this book is a treasure, a manual, a daily prayer. What a perfect and evocative review of your beautiful book, Scott. Scott Stabile, welcome to Finding Your Blessing. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much, Judy. I'm still high from the breath that you guided us through before we came on. <laughs> I'm feeling good. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. That's such a delightful thing to hear from you of all people, because you're the real connoisseur. Before we dive into your latest book, Enough As You Are, and by the way, congratulations. What a feat you. to write one, but to write two books as Thank beautiful so as each much. of them are. I just want to tell the listeners briefly about your first book, because I can't ignore it. It's so much of who you are. It's really your personal journey. And the first book is, as mentioned off the top, is Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And as I mentioned, it really resonated with a large audience and in fact has this huge following. And it's really rooted in the concept of embracing love and living with an open heart. And it also, unfortunately and sadly, and I'm so sorry about the immense tragedy that you had to go through as a 14-year-old child when your parents were brutally murdered and you were 14 years old. Like, that's that in itself. And then you lost a brother a few years later to a heroin overdose. And Scott, these are such huge and deep traumas. And I, first of all, I'm so sorry for the immense tragedy that you experienced in your young life. But what I find fascinating is many people would take their wounds and their pain and their hurt and probably their anger, and they would go nurse those wounds in a corner. And you've done completely the opposite. You've been beyond outward focused and have found a way to find love and healing, and not only for yourself, but for all of us and for the world. And I just think that's 
so exemplary. Thank you. I'm just wondering if you can take us back to that time and that what that was like for you as a 14-year-old boy crouched in a bathroom, sobbing to the sounds of your sister's screams. Like, how do you come back from that? You know, I how do you come back from that? What I feel called to say without in any way devaluing the depth of trauma that my experience held for me is that I really do believe that if you've made it to adulthood, you've encountered trauma and in some way are dealing with it. And it it might not be as dramatic as having your parents shot to death. I understand that. And yet the things that we hold on to as children, just a simple statement made by someone we love and respect that is this admonishing judgmental statement can be something that we internalize in such a deep way and and silence an aspect of ourselves because of it. Like maybe you were told as a child, you're, you're just too much, you need to be more quiet, and you go through life feeling like you're too much. So what do you do in that, in that instance? You shudder yourself, right? And so you live life on half the dial turned up because you feel like there's something wrong with you. And that is its own trauma. So for me as a 14-year-old, how did I deal with it? I have no idea. And I mean that genuinely. I wasn't making any choices consciously at that time, Mm. at least in my memory. Something in me or something outside of me guided me to bury it. And that's what I did. Like I, I was at the time a very, like a straight A student, you know, like an exemplary kid. And Mm. I stayed on that path and I put that, my parents' murder away. And after the first few months, once a year, I would cry about it. It was like Mm. clockwork. And then I would bury it again. And then something would trigger all these emotions to come up again. And that was going on for years until I was in my early twenties. And that once a year cry, didn't stop. It was going on. It was like day three into it. And I thought something had broken inside of me. I thought I was losing my mind. And I literally opened the yellow pages for those of you who know what those are, phone books. (laughs) (laughs) And I went to the psychotherapist section, whatever it was called. And I closed my eyes and pointed my finger and I called, (laughs) I called that woman. And at the Yeah. At the time I could afford six sessions. So I saw her for six weeks. And I think what I was shown (laughs) and what I remember feeling is I think that there was something in me that believed if I let myself feel the depth of my anguish and my rage around what happened to my parents, that I wouldn't come back from it. Like I, something in me felt like I wouldn't have been able to survive it. And those six sessions, just talking with a therapist at that time hmm. and, and crying every time and raging, it allowed me to see that, hey, you can survive it. You can, al- <laughs> you can let yourself feel. And I think for a lot of us, the reason we run so intensely away from the uncomfortable feelings is yes. we have this voice inside that is telling us you're not going to make it through it. You can't survive it. When in fact, the only way to know that we can is if we allow ourselves to, if we allow ourselves to sit in our feelings instead of always running. Absolutely. And what's also so fascinating is you didn't share it with anyone. In fact, if topics of family came up, people would discuss parents, you'd walk away, you'd change the subject, you'd just you didn't want to even go there. And it's so interesting how now you've really gone there to share with all of us. 
And um, to your point, like that took so much energy. Like when I look back on the the younger version of me, all the conversations I would manipulate away from family. And yeah. I was always on this heightened alert that mm-hmm. something could end up talking about parents. So what am I going to do to, and there's no freedom in that. That is its own prison, honestly. Mm-hmm. Of course. So, Yeah. So I appreciate like the work you're doing and others who are inviting these types of dialogues. It's just fascinating and so exemplary of you that not only were you able, and also a real testament to the human spirit, that not only were you able to process this tragedy, but really you were able to become a light for others, ultimately putting out into the universe your first book, Big Love, that struck a major chord with so many people who are desperate for healing and light. And of course, that in a way led to the book that we're here to talk about today, Enough As You Are, in which Elizabeth Gilbert writes, I adore and admire everything Scott creates. That's Eat, Pray, Love, by the way, for those of you who don't know Elizabeth Gilbert, what a compliment. Can you tell us about your latest brainchild, Enough As You Are, and what inspired you to write this beautiful collection of poetry and short prose that you can read and reread over and over again? I have my favorite dog-geared pages, and I'm ready to share some of those with with the audience. So congratulations on it. But what inspired you to create this whole other book? Like, so cool. After Big Love, to, to have so much more to say. Yeah. Enough As You Are is predominantly a collection of writings from over the past 10 years. So, so much of it was already written when I was coming to think about putting a manuscript together. And I started collecting some of my favorite pieces of writing that I've shared in different ways over the years. And it just fell into this book that for me embodies overall, like the power of self-acceptance and self-love and how can we not only get honest with ourselves about the parts that we struggle with, the parts that we do not even like about ourselves, but even with those things, what happens when we bring grace and love to our relationships with all aspects of ourselves. And then understanding what I believe deeply to be true is that love always transcends self. So any work you are doing on self-love is actually work you're doing on all of your relationships because foundationally where you are with yourself informs how you show up for everyone and everything, which is why I believe self-love is so important. So There's a book I always quote, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Neil Donald Walsh, Conversations with God. Love it. Oh, she loved that book. And that, and I'm always telling people that I don't think people really get that book, but that book is so important because it's also saying love combats fear, love combats hate, love combats everything. But how do we access it? And I think that your book helps us do that. I love this constant refrain. It's almost like a refrain, a common denominator all throughout Enough As You Are, where you talk about how others see you doesn't represent the truth of who you are but only of their perception of you. Can you say more? Sure. It's really just understanding that we are all interpreting others through our own lived experience and through whatever it is we're going through in the moment and how we feel about ourselves, which is to say that no matter how another person is judging you, it has so little to do with you because it is being filtered through their own experience in that moment and their own life up until that point. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's just a reminder not to take things personally. And also I take plenty personally, right? Like, cause we're human, like that's a completely natural response if someone's being disrespectful or unkind. But I just try to remind myself that nothing is personal. 
It's, mm-hmm. and it, it helps me. It, what it does for me is it allows me to sink into my compassionate heart. Mm-hmm. And, and because if we're taking everything personally and feeling deeply wounded or criticized by the things that others are telling us, it's a lot harder to show up in a loving space for that moment, for that relationship, for that conversation. Mm-hmm. And when we can stop taking things personally, we can be more grounded and a bit more centered in how we're able to show up. Sure. I always think about the audience of a thousand, and let's say it's you or, you know, at the front and you're giving a speech, you're giving a talk, and I can only imagine how great that would be. And 999 of the 1,000 people get up and they're cheering and they're applauding and they're giving you a standing ovation for five minutes. And there's one guy Uh who's sitting in the front row with their (laughs) arms crossed defensively. Uh And why do we all focus on that one guy instead of the 999 who are cheering, yay, you're the best. What is that in our nature? And how do we look at that one guy? And you're right, look at him with compassion. Maybe his back is killing him and he can't get up. Or maybe he wishes he was up there. Or there's a million reasons, right? Or maybe he really doesn't like you. And well, he maybe he doesn't <laughs> resonate with what you're saying at all. That's the thing. Like that's a total possibility as well. Sure. And, and you're so right. Our minds lock on the one yeah. negative in a sea of positivity. Yeah. And and yeah. what's important about understanding that is that knowing that our minds are automatically going to steer toward the negative. They're going to steer toward insecurity. They're going to steer toward fear. We don't have to give any energy to that. I have yet to meet a a person who has ever said to me, I need to be more negative. I need to be more (laughs) self-critical. Like this is not the experience of human beings. So knowing that our mind will go in that direction, it's incumbent upon us to give more energy to the benefits of situations, to what is beautiful about ourselves, to what we appreciate, because our minds aren't going to naturally do it. Yeah, that's great. That's so great. You're also, what struck me, is that you're such an outward focused human being and you speak a lot about things like how you'll never know when you'll be the person who ignites that awakening in someone else. And that's why it's so important to weave kindness and love into our interactions as often as possible. I don't know why this really touched my heart and made me weep when I read this line. I reread it a few times. Can you elaborate more on how we can achieve this gift of being able to light up another human being? I mean, for me, again, like I'm going to bring this back to love because when I speak about love, what I'm speaking about is my understanding of love as an energy. And it's an energy that is alive inside of us. It's alive outside of us. And as I've observed in my lived experience, it is the only energy. And when I speak about love, it's the umbrella for kindness, forgiveness, compassion. These are the energies that create healing. Nothing else does. There are many other change agents on the planet. Anger is a necessary and powerful change agent, but anger alone is not going to create healing. It's going to create change that reflects a lot of the insanity we're already seeing. So unless you're weaving love into whatever it is, healing doesn't get created. So I know that if I'm moving through the world playing with this energy of love that's everywhere, inviting it, that the potential I have to create something beautiful as I'm relating to other people is greater than if I'm resting in a different energetic place. And by the way, the reason self-love is so important is because 
the more loving we are with ourselves, the more we understand that we are worthy as we are. It's, it's inherent. It's not predicated on success or looks or money or anything. And when you can start moving through the world, connecting to your inherent worth, how you show up changes dramatically. You're not as mired in the insecurities of your mind. You're not lost in this notion that you are not enough because when you show up in the world as you are not enough, it's like you're energetically shut down and closed off. And it's hard to connect with people from that place in a way that is of service to both of you. Mm, it's just lovely. There's a gorgeous poem, by the way, and I have to tell you all, some of these poems are like maybe 10 words or 15 words or less, and some of them, they're all different lengths, but they're so beautiful, especially the short ones for some reason, because there's you. so much in them. There's a gorgeous poem where you write, don't forget to surrender to the moments of joy that present themselves. Immerse yourself in every wave of bliss that dares to swallow you. Soften, sink, let yourself go. Oh, so beautiful. I like hearing you read that. Thank you. <laughs> what did you mean by that poem? Because it just reminds me of enlightenment and bliss and how we don't immerse ourselves. What it meant to me was sometimes we have those moments of bliss and we just gloss over them onto the next thing. Got to go here. Got to go there. Got to do this. Got to achieve that. But I think what you're saying is immerse yourself. Stop. Pause. Yeah. Yes. But it might absolutely. be more. There might, that no, might be it, it, my interpretation. No. Well, your interpretation is all that matters, right? Because you're the <laughs> one reading it for yourself. So it is absolutely that. And there are a few pieces in there that talk about bliss and joy. So for me, the other aspect of that, along with what you said, is just understanding that we are living at a time where there is so much awareness of the insanity on our planet. And I'm noticing a lot of people feel guilty about allowing themselves to be joyful and allowing themselves to surrender to bliss. They feel like they're doing a disservice to those who are suffering, to those who are mired in their own misery for whatever reason. And and it's not our misery that's going to pull someone out of their misery. That's not how things work. So this was about also just allowing for the experience of bliss and joy in our lives because it's not always there. We're not always living in it. So when it does come through, just melt into it and, mm -hmm. and see what that creates for yourself. And I happen to believe I get really energized by other people's joy. It's a reminder to me when we're being told that everything here is dark and miserable, that that's not actually the truth. There's a whole world that is also joyful and kind and compassionate. Yes. And so where are we directing our gaze? Absolutely. Sometimes it is all a bit too much, and especially yeah. of late where the world is right now. Definitely. So you say we numb ourselves with various things like food or booze, sex, shopping, or scrolling. I added scrolling. I'm a yeah. big scroller. I've got to stop doing it, Scott. You say that's okay sometimes, but don't forget to feel your life. In other words, stop numbing yourself. Feel it. Even the bad stuff. Can you say more yeah, but, about that? And I'll tell you what, I used to really beat myself up for the times I was numbing myself. And I don't think that's necessary. For me, the, the invitation that I keep getting from my heart is the recognition that all of this experience here is part of being human. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to choose to watch Netflix for seven hours, <laughs> and it's a show that I love. What, what show? I, 
But well, no, I'm finish. just saying in general. Oh, I love like if you knew, I love vampires and witches and like anything <laughs> like fantasy, supernatural. That's the only type of dark stuff I can watch. If <laughs> if there's going to be murder and stuff, it has to be in a supernatural way. And then I love. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go down all my Shit's <laughs> <laughs> Creek. Mine is Shit's Creek. Oh Shits my Creek. god, are you no, kidding I'm me? You know, I've you have seen. No idea. A, I've seen every episode numerous times. Me too. 400. Yeah. Oh, I've seen them love, 400 and I interviewed the executive producer. He couldn't believe it. I've seen it 400 times I and I'm ready to watch show. it all again. Yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. But anyway, you're yeah. saying, so when so, you're, when you're watching a Netflix series. Right. Because the point is like, there's no value to shaming yourself. I have never shamed myself into a healing place. So if I'm watching yeah. Shit's Creek for hours on Netflix, the old me would have judged myself. Like, this is not a value. Why are you doing this? This is yeah. hurting yourself, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And now when I do that, it's not that my mind doesn't still want to go to this self-abusive place, but beyond that, if we can stop the shame cycle, what we're left with is just watching Shit's Creek, which brings <laughs> me joy. If yeah. I'm eating a pint of ice cream in one sitting, which <laughs> I can do easily, I can beat myself up about it. You're not taking care of yourself. This is unhealthy. You're a pig, da, 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 da. <laughs> or... I could just eat the pint of ice cream. And without all that shame talk, I'm just left with ice cream. And that's really enjoyable. So my point is, if all we're doing is numbing, we're not serving ourselves. But if all we're doing is shaming ourselves for numbing, we're also not serving ourselves. Mm -hmm. So can we open ourselves and hold space for both? The understanding that part of living as a human being is going to be to numb sometimes. And that's totally mm -hmm. okay because this world is overwhelming. And then also for me, some of the most fulfilling aspects of being human is really allowing myself to be with what it is I'm feeling and not judging that either. Like there's nothing wrong with sadness. There's nothing wrong with anger. There's nothing wrong with any of these more difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we allow them to be, they actually have a chance of moving through us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is such an important thing. I also love when you talk about people who judge you and I, and you mentioned this off the top, but you say it quite a bit throughout the book. So how do we stay neutral about those judgers? Because they're all around us, the judger mindset person. And yeah. somehow it does seep into our veins. Yeah. How do we stay neutral? You know, I'll, I'll give you an, a, something that my mom once said to me, which is walk in a straight line in life. When someone praises you, go, well, that's so nice, but don't suck it in. Don't need it so desperately. When someone criticizes you, do the same. Just keep focusing ahead. Focus well ahead. And don't let the criticism affect you. Don't let the praise affect you too much. Just be kind of in neutral. What do you think it's about very, that? It's very zen and it's very difficult to do, I think, in both regards, right? So I don't feel compelled to remain neutral. What I feel most compelled to do is to offer myself grace when I'm unable to be neutral and when I'm internalizing stuff, while at the same time reminding myself that this has little to nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. This is their story. They're projecting whatever they're projecting onto me. But even with that awareness, I know you know this too, Judy, even with that awareness, it can still be hard to be neutral when you're being faced with a lot of judgment. And of then that the other thing I'd recommend to people in general is to look at the relationships you're in in your life. And if you find that you're in a relationship with someone who is often judging you, criticizing you, disrespecting mm -hmm. you, then it's incumbent upon you to ask yourself, should you choose? Like, why am I choosing to remain in a relationship with someone who is throwing so much judgment at me? Yes. You even say in the book to that point that 
sometimes you say to yourself, well, I've been in a relationship with them for 20 years. What am I to do? We've been in this for 20 years, but it's very, very wise to reevaluate if it's causing you that much pain and toxicity, even after 20 years. You have amazing recall. I I really appreciate that. Like you're very prepared. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) One of my favorite poems in your book and probably the shortest one, I think, I didn't count the words, but it was very short. But it's it's a poem that makes you feel exultant, is become so wild, the world gives up on trying to tame you. I love that. Can you say more about that? That sounds so thrilling and liberating. Don't answer that just yet. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio. And right before the break, I mentioned one of my favorite poems of yours, Scott, where you wrote, become so wild, the world gives up on trying to tame you. Can you say more? Yeah, I think that, I mean, for me, that just speaks to the wildness within us before we, we've all been conditioned to within an inch of our lives. It starts at a very young age and it starts with our parents or caregivers, whoever was raising us. And it continues with our churches and with our governments and with our friends and colleagues. Everyone is telling us who it is we're supposed to be, how it is we're supposed to think, what it is we're supposed to do in order to be considered okay. And as you grow, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to realize that it is absolutely impossible to fit within the confines of that conditioning. (laughs) And if you're courageous enough to look at yourself honestly and ask yourself, is what I'm saying right now or what I'm doing right now, does it reflect my conditioning or does it reflect what feels most true for me? And when I'm speaking to the wildness, that's what I'm speaking to, like the truth within us. And the more committed you are to living in your truth, the harder it's going to be for the world to tame you. Right. And not because you're even actively trying to remain untamed. You're just honoring what feels most authentic within you. It's just, it's just gorgeous. Another short poem that I loved in the book is be a spot of color in other people's gray. God, that's gorgeous. Be a spot of color in other people's gray. What did that mean for you? What made you write that? Think that You know, for me, the story that's coming up for me, as you said it, is this experience I had when I was living in Panama, when I woke up really grumpy and like just the world was dark, right? And I had to go to the grocery store and I went to the grocery store still feeling this way. And the woman, the checkout woman was just the most effervescent human on the planet. And she was 
all smiles. She was so kind. I wasn't, my Spanish wasn't great at that time. She doesn't speak English. We're, we're communicating, but I left that experience a changed person. Like she was a spot of color in my gray. And it was just a reminder to me that when we're in our hearts and when we're just being kind, we actually never know just how much we might be affecting another person's life. Wow. Right. So that's from a, like, that's without knowing how we're affecting. And then of course, if you know, there are people in your life who are struggling and you can be intentional about reaching out or just remind them they're loved, you know, that's another way to, to show up with kindness and love for people. And it so you're matters. Not, you're it not makes saying, a difference. You're, you're not saying wear a pop of pink. You're saying be a pop of pink. <laughs> <laughs> be a pop of pink and wear one if you want to. <laughs> I see many pops of pink in your, your, your scene. <laughs> so I'm someone who's a bliss coach. I'm a life coach who coaches people around bliss and I help people connect to their passion and purpose. And I'm very compelled to help people find their bliss. But you say in the book, it's 100% okay to not have a clue about what you want to do with your life. And you suggest asking deeper questions. So instead of saying, what should I do with my life? Try something like, what things add meaning to my life? Or what feels good and makes me smile? And I just thought that was so brilliant. I'd like to quote you in a session, an upcoming session. Because these kinds of questions will give you more specific, evocative answers. Can you say more about not knowing but asking questions that, you know, what adds meaning? I love that. Or what feels good? Yeah. I mean, for me, not knowing is a part, again, a part of being human. There are often times in our lives when we're not necessarily clear about what we want to do, what we feel like we should quote unquote should do. And again, this is something that has created for me a lot of suffering in my life, like this, this pressure to be clear about my purpose and be on the right career path and all of these different messages that we get, instead of just allowing for the unknowing, allowing for an unfolding that is built upon curiosity and, yes. and not knowing. And then as far as questions, I'm a big fan of generative questions. Like I think that in our fear, we often ask questions that shut us down to pursuing what our heart might be calling us to do or our curiosity. Mm -hmm. As an example, like if I have a job I don't like and I want to get a new job, but I'm worried about the finances, I'm worried I won't find a job. And I ask myself, am I going to be able to find another job that I, you know, that I really Mm -hmm. like? My fear is going to say, no, (laughs) you're not right. (laughs) And it's going to keep me in my job. But what happens if I ask the question in this way, like, what are the first steps I can take to find the kind of job that's really going to light up my heart? That mm-hmm. automatically sends me down a path of yes. It automatically assumes that I'm going to find the kind of job that lights my heart and what are the first things I can do? And then suddenly I'm acting in alignment with my heart instead of mm-hmm. in alignment with my fear. Wow. That's very, very cool. There's another, and I, and I know I'm quoting a lot of these lines and poems, but they're beautiful. Another beautiful poem in the book that's so needed right now this was so fabulous. You are some kind of warrior or you'd never have gotten this far. And that brought me to the question of thinking that I think what you're saying in a lot of your work is that no matter how difficult or brutal people can be, find the love in your heart. And how can you do this when something so terrible happens, like the massacre of people in the most barbaric, sickening and cruel way? How do you find 
love and forgiveness. That's another big theme in your book, forgiveness, in the light of terrorism, in the light of brutality, in the light of abject cruelty, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. How do you, where is the love coming from? Where are you tapping into love and forgiveness when there almost is no forgiveness for some of these acts of brutality and man's inhumanity to men? Yeah, it's difficult. What I will say is this, that when I'm in my heart, the message is crystal clear. It is always just love, period. And that, for me, that means forgiveness, find your compassion. Like my heart never wavers, which is why I like to be in my heart as often as possible because there's clarity there. Mm -hmm. So when I consider the world and how insane and how violent and cruel it is, Mm -hmm. when I'm in my heart, I remind myself that the people who are perpetrating these kinds of acts, it goes back to the, the famous hurt people hurt people. It's like, These are not people who were just living a joyful, easy life and then decided to commit terrorist acts on other people. That is not the nature of humanity as I understand it. Mm -hmm. So my compassion invites me to remember their humanity, to consider their humanity, to make myself available to whatever horrors they must have gone through, not might have, but must have gone through Mm -hmm. in order to find themselves in a place where they're killing people. You know, and if I may, I'd like to share a a story about how I got my way to forgiving the man who killed my parents, because that's what I connect to as we're talking about this. You know, when I was 14 and for many years after, forgiveness was not, that was the last thing on my mind. When I thought of this man, it was with hatred. It was with vengeful thoughts, wanting him dead, imagining horrible scenarios of him dying. And in my 20s, when I started to open up more to what love creates in our lives, I would still think about this man and feel this tightness in my chest and all these hateful things. And I I said to myself, you need to do something about this. Like, this isn't how you want to be every single time you think of him. This does not feel good. It feels emotionally and physically depleting. And so I felt like forgiveness was the answer, but I had no idea. You can't just call forgiveness out of the sky and then suddenly you forgive, at least in my experience. But what I did do was I started to empathize with him. And without knowing the details of his life, what I felt like I could do was I could make an assumption that he was incredibly lost and unhappy and angry and felt unseen and unloved because I felt that anyone who could murder people had to feel some combination of all of those things. And even the violence, Judy, which for me was like, well, I could never kill someone. And I still believe that to be true, but I could relate to the violence because I had thought horrifically violent thoughts about him. So even that part of his experience, I felt like if I'm honest with myself, I can connect. And suddenly I wasn't just looking at him as a killer, but I was connecting to his humanity. And what I noticed as time went by and I continued to do this practice is that I felt love for him. And then what I noticed when I would think about him was I don't no longer felt tethered to him in this toxic way. It was like all of that empathy was the path to reaching a place of forgiveness. And the gift of that, why I speak about forgiveness a lot, and I'm not I'm not going to tell anyone they have to forgive anyone they don't want to forgive. Live your life. Do what you feel called to do. I feel compelled to forgive because I have been shown the freedom 
that comes from forgiveness. It untethers you to the person in the incident in that toxic way and liberates you. What about when the bad people, though, don't forgive you and they keep doing bad and more bad and more bad, meaning, God forbid, that guy that did that terrible atrocity to your family keeps going and doing it to other people or these bad terrorists keep going and doing it again. Like, where do you go with that thought that they keep doing bad? So you can have all the love and compassion and forgiveness in your life, but they keep being bad. They don't want to be good. Right. But you have no control over that. All we have any influence over really is how we choose to show up in this world. I want to see more love and compassion in this world. And if that is my truth, I need to be an example of what it is I want to see because that's what I have power over. I will never be able to control what anyone else is doing. I can't stop people from murdering but I can check in with myself and look at, am I holding space for their humanity within it? Do you really believe that if all of us were to be the love and be the peace that we want to see in the world, that there would be love and peace in the world? Yeah, but it would take all of us or it would take the vast majority. I believe that for me, I experience everything here as energy and the energy of love is alive on this planet, of course, but the energy of fear is huge on this planet, especially right now, it feels like. But if there's a tipping point where the literally the majority of people are so committed to staying in their heart and exercising love and only engaging with governments, with politicians, with others who are vibrating in that same way, there would not be room in the same way for this hatred and violence. I really don't believe it would be possible. But I also think we're a long way away from that because I think right now fear has the reins on a lot of people. Fear has the reins. Uh, It's very, very big, big stuff. You also say in the book, there's a poem where you say, let's stop pretending we know things we can't possibly know for sure. Maybe just be quiet sometimes. Shutting up can often be the wisest choice. Certainly better than spilling our ignorance all over each other. I found that to be brilliant. There's so much anger and there's so much talk and so much, as you say, fear, a lot of this fear, because really what is anger? It's fear turned inwards, right? It's like depression, fear turned inwards. But there's so much of this spilling the ignorance Mm -hmm. out all over each other. What do we do about that? What in your beautiful book, Enough As You Are, can you do to simmer that down? Stop spilling the tea, stop spilling it all. I can only be an example of it in my life. And I can only in the way that I choose to communicate in my writing and in my speaking, even if I'm speaking for some of my convictions that are in opposition to others, people's convictions, can I do it in a way where I'm still allowing compassion, where I am not shaming others, where I'm not dehumanizing others. All we can do is be the example. It's all all we can can do. do. And I want to just also just emphasize I could write what you just read because I've done it a thousand times. I have been the person who's not been the loving one, right? Like we've all been there. We all have done it. I I suspect we're all still doing it at times and in moments. But if we can bring awareness to it and just ask ourselves like, how am I showing up in this moment? Am I centered in my heart? If not, is it necessary for me right now to share what I feel called to share? Or can I let a little time pass where I might be able to share exactly what I need to share, but in a more loving way? Absolutely. Without compromising anything I need to say. 
Absolutely. You also say that it's what we do from this moment on that matters the most, no matter what we've done in the past or what's been done to us in the past. I love that. Can you say more about Thank that? You. Yeah. I mean, I say this all the time because for me, it's such an important reminder is it's like, it will always only be what you do from this moment on yes. that will matter the most in your life. Right. And that's such an exciting thing to understand that we are not bound to our past traumas. We are not limited by past failures as we see them because here we are right now. If I've been in an unloving relationship with myself for 30 years, okay. And here I am right now? Am I willing to show up for myself differently? Can I commit to loving myself more intentionally? And what can I create by doing so? So it's a very hopeful statement. This actually piggybacks so beautifully onto what you just said, is that you say our relationship with ourselves informs how we show up in the world more than anything else. So the minute we've got that self-love, chances are we're going to be able to give that love out to the world and be a light in the world and do all those good things. But it has to begin with loving yourself. Uh, look, I do believe that some people really struggle to love themselves and actually love other people in very beautiful ways. So love is love is a very generous energy. And to what you're saying, you're always going to be able to offer more when it's deeper within you. <laughs> Absolutely. Like it starts from within. It really does. You talk about so many, like you just, there's so many great life lessons. Like this one really struck me as well about how important it is not to put off important conversations just because they're difficult to have. But you also write it's important not to have those difficult conversations <laughs> at the wrong time. Like I love your example of uh -huh. you're on your way to the, you know, the, the big football game, the, the, Super, the Bowl, Super Bowl, you call yeah. it in the US. And there you are. And that's the time you want to talk to your husband about yourselves as a couple. And no, uh -huh. no, don't do it then or the night of the Oscars or whatever. Right. Choose your timing. Make sure your timing is good. But have those difficult conversations. Why is it so important to have those difficult conversations? And how can people brace themselves with confidence to do so? We're going to find out more about this night after a short commercial break. We'll be right back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, everyone. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740. And just before the break, I was asking you, Scott, about why it's so important to sometimes have these difficult conversations. I think it's important because I think that relationships require honesty and communication. And if we're just sitting on the things that are truth and not expressing them, we're not serving whatever relationship we're in. Yes. They're so difficult to have because I think we understand intuitively that 
by expressing what feels most true for us, especially when they're difficult truths, there's always the risk that it's going to change the dynamic in that situation. Mm -hmm. What I trust, though, is if we are both able to show up as honestly as possible, if that dynamic changes, then that is the best thing that can possibly happen for the relationship. Yes. Right. But it's not easy. And and also I just want to say we all, every single person listening knows the tense feeling inside that you're yeah. dreading the conversation and you're putting it off. So you're living yes. with this energy of tension. And we all know the liberation of finally uh, having the conversation, even when it doesn't go the way you want, like finally those elephants are like, off your shoulders. Yeah. Exactly. The like monkey's off your back. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You write that you look around and see so much fear. You've just mentioned it and people getting comfortable with their hate. And you say, not me. I will not get lost in this fearful world. I will not play with bullies. I will continue to be brave and kind. I speak for empathy and compassion. And no matter what, I will never stop loving. Can you say more? I know you've talked about this, but just people getting comfortable with their hate and how we we say, no, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be loving. Is that all about forgiveness or something else at play? I mean, it's for me, it's about understanding. I feel most at home in myself when I'm in my heart, when I am loving. Mm-hmm. If if hatred felt good, we would be having a very different conversation. Yes, I'd be yes. advocating, I'd be a hate advocate, yes. but I want to feel good and love feels good. Yes. So it's really understanding that when I'm engaging in the hatred, I do not feel good and I do not feel at home. So I know what I need to do personally in order to feel better. And by the way, I also sometimes get overwhelmed by all of it and shut down and don't show up the way I would like to ideally and fall off the love train. And all we can ultimately do is nudge ourselves back. Exactly. You also talk about, and I know we touched on this at the beginning, but that most of us have shame about something or other in our lives. And you write that I will not let my shame keep me from telling the truth. What did you mean when you wrote that? You know, shame's great power is that it silences us and it lives in our secrets, right? Like our shame tells us that we are inherently flawed. Something about us is inherently flawed. And that if we express that, we will be judged harshly. That's how my shame communicates to me. And so what's important to understand is that shame can't live out in the open in the same way. So one of the ways to transcend shame is to actually speak about those things you're ashamed of. And that can be an extremely terrifying thing to do. And one of the great gifts of this internet age is knowing that your shame wants to tell you you are alone in whatever it is you're feeling. And when you do a little Google search, you'll find that there are thousands of <laughs> thousands other people of who are do, going through the exact same <laughs> thing. So right. And that can help liberate you from your shame. So right. Another beautiful poem, and we don't have to go into this, but I just want to share this with the audience is, I may not yet know what I can achieve, but I've seen what I can overcome. And I refuse to underestimate myself again. You're a bit of a motivational speaker as well, aren't you? <laughs> you know, I like to remind people like we don't we do not have to be lost in this idea that we are not enough or that we can't do the things we want to do or that our fear is too great. We can open ourselves up and make ourselves available to other possibilities in our lives and when we do so and we're more intentional and and we have more belief in ourselves, there are few limits to what we can create. You know, I'm not someone who thinks you can do anything. No, you're not going to fly, but like you can do a lot. (laughs) 
I love this. I laughed when I read this next bit of short prose you wrote, which is, I stopped chasing enlightenment when I finally understood that attaining it was not within my power. Enlightenment is a gift, like winning the spiritual lottery, not an achievement. And you say, what is within my power is kindness, my compassion, and my love. And I work on those constantly, and they reward me every day. Their gifts are more than enough for me. So are you saying that we shouldn't be striving for enlightenment? We should be doing the things like being loving, kind, feeling gratitude that will keep us in an enlightened state. I'm not, I, I'm just wondering if you can clarify what that means. Cause yeah, that's what I'm saying for myself because I had a guru and was chasing enlightenment for many years yes. and it created a lot of suffering in my life because I was wow. continuously judging myself against a more enlightened Im- imagined version of myself instead yes. of offering myself acceptance and love where I am. Yes. So it's like, for me, if you're, playing with love and compassion and forgiveness, and this is how you're living your life, you're going to be receiving huge gifts and huge benefits. And if that ultimately unfolds into a more enlightened state, beautiful. But to like chase after something that isn't within your power is a recipe, for me anyway, of suffering and struggle. Right, right. Really, really amazing. You also talk about being excited by divinity. Can you elaborate on that? I was excited when I read that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like how I, again, this is just my understanding of things. It's like, there is an energy that created everything. It created the mountains and the oceans and the planets. And that same energy is alive within us. I refer to it most often as source energy. So I recognize and embrace my humanity, but I am also infused with this energy that is beyond humanity. And that energy for me is boundless. It is wildly creative. It is abundantly loving. And so when I'm tapping into the like expansiveness of my humanity and my divinity, is when I feel most high and most alive. How do you tap into it? Breath work. (laughs) Breath work is one path. I'm so glad you said this because you are a huge expert. By the way, I have to have you back again because I'm just going to tell you I have like another 25 questions. Yeah, and we're getting to the end of the hour. So we're going to have to do a part two, just just saying this because there's just so much. Tell us quickly about the breath work. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a huge expert. Like I did train in breathwork facilitation, but any, if if you can hold space in a good way, you can guide people in breathwork. But this yeah. practice that I guide, this transformational breathwork practice, it's how to explain it. I've had some of the most profound healing experiences in my life through a 25-minute breathwork journey. It, mm. it is a, an incredible practice for releasing stuck energy it can help with pain, it can help with depression, it can help with your sleep. I'm not a medium in any way, have never been in my life. Three breathwork sessions in a row, I spoke very clearly to my parents. They showed up for me for the first time ever in my life. And the healing that came, especially the, the communication with my father, helped heal a wound I've been carrying through my lifetime. So there's just, there's no saying the breath is so powerful. And I guide almost weekly online. You do it online. Is this part of a group or the individual or both? I mean, I can do private sessions as well, but I I do the online as a a group. Whoever signs, registers for it comes and they breathe in their own space. But I do the guiding through Zoom. We're going to have to tell people how they can sign up for this because I might even want to sign up for this myself. What is a love activist and what do you love about that title? 
Well, you referenced Glennon earlier, and she referred to me as that in her blurb for Big Love. And I was always someone who could never... Whenever someone asked me, what do you do? I would stumble through like, well, I do some writing and I do some of this and I never made any sense. And then I, I saw the words love activist. And I'm like, that is a great title because for me, that just means I make a lot of noise for the power of love and self-love in our mm. lives. That's it's a good one. Activist. It's a good one. Why I, you're a love that? activist, Judy. <laughs> I, I am. Well. I am. <laughs> but how did you get that? Why is enough as you are especially important at this moment in our lives? I think it's always important. And why would it be especially important now? Because look at how insane this world is. And when you see the violence, when you see the dehumanization, it is never coming from a person who is in a loving relationship with themselves. That is not how self-love reflects in the world. So one path to creating a more whole and loving world is to recognize that your inherent worth and to get in deeper, better relationship with yourself and to understand without question that as you are right now is enough. If you made no other change in your life, if you could bring to this moment your heart's level of self-acceptance, your whole life would change and that would in turn contribute to the changing of our world. What is bliss for Scott Stabile? Bliss... What is bliss in this moment? I'm, you know, I can only, I'm, I'm really high from our conversation and being with you. So in this moment, bliss is just chatting with you on your podcast, <laughs> surrendering to the, the joy of the moment and yeah. melting into it. Wow. You really get it. I have to say you really get it. And I have to tell everyone, you have to get this book enough as you are, because the coolest thing about it is I kept thinking as I was dog-earing the pages, I have to come back to that poem. I have to come back to that poem. I have to come back to that short prose. It's the kind of thing that you really can keep on your nightside table, your bedside table, and just reread and reread over and over again. And it might mean something different to you every day. It's really incredible. How can people get a copy of your book and get in touch with you, connect with you on social media? Etc. Sure. Well, so scottstabile.com. And then I have a Substack newsletter with new writings and, and video teachings and stuff. And that's scottstabile.substack.com. And then Instagram and Facebook, of course. And the book, I mean, hopefully it's in your bookstore. If it's not, ask them to, to get it. And then you can get it online on Amazon, wherever. I love that. I want to thank you so much. I can't speak, Scott, for being here today. It's really been I don't know if the word is divinity, but there's just been something very, very special. And I'm, I'm, I'm not finding the word right now, but just enlightening. And I feel a bit more enlightened and just so good after talking thank to you. you. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thank you thank so you much. Very much. Each week we spotlight a fabulous person like Scott Stabile, who is living his bliss. And I think most importantly is helping all of us to live and to connect with our bliss and to tap into our bliss. It's amazing. So if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. We also love to feature singers, songwriters, musicians on this show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. And Are there any guests or topics you would love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Just write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach and I love to help people find and follow and tap into their enlightenment and their bliss and their purpose and passion. 
And I'm going to be doing it now in a whole new way after talking to Scott. (laughs) Not with as much pressure, just beautiful conversations that just make you feel good and bring more meaning into your life. And I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. Check it out. There's actually a great new meditation that will be up any day now. All you have to do is search up Judy Liebrach. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Scott Stabile, for being on the show today. It was great having you here. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitz-Yellow, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.